So I'm, uh, can you hear me out there? I want to make sure you can hear me. Yeah? Everybody can hear. Good. It sounds very cavernous to me. It's an amazing spot. I've never seen this place before. It's really beautiful. You all have, uh, there was a raise of hands of who's never been here before. I'd like to see how many are regular Sangha members. How many of you come come often? Okay, great. Beautiful. Um, it's good stuff, huh? This, this Dharma. It's, I am really thrilled to have the fortune in my life, this life to, to have the Dharma in my life, to be introduced to it, to, um, have beautiful teachers all around me and to, you know, find my way and grow myself into this, this position of sitting in front of you and really how it works in my life. I mean, the reason why I love it is because it actually, it works. It's empirical. I mean, you know, the Buddha always said, you know, don't, don't trust what I say. See how it works. And I find that it's um, kind of the best medicine, really. And so um, there was many things I thought about talking about tonight and um, I kept going back and forth, back and forth, and I realized where the juice is for me. And where the juice is for me is around, um, I'm really focusing in right now on the Eightfold Path. And um, a couple of the eight that are particularly interesting to me, the, the first one that is listed is right view. And the last one listed is right concentration. And I kind of am going back and forth a lot between those at this point in my life. So I wanted to talk a little bit about wise view. And it is such at the core of everything, wise view. So I am making, and maybe I shouldn't make the assumption that we all know about the Eightfold Path, the the Four Noble Truths, um, and that, you know, the, the Buddha and his biggest discovery and what passed down to all these thousands of years has been this notion of the Four Noble Truths, that one, the first Noble Truth is the suffering of life, that life is tough, that it's hard, that there's a lot going on that is difficult. And... The second one is that there's actually a reason for it, right? And a lot has to do with our grasping, clinging nature to things. Um, so there's a reason for, the, for it, why it's so difficult. And third noble truth is that it really doesn't have to be that way, that there's a way out of it, that peace is possible, that freedom is possible. Um, and the fourth is the Eightfold Path, and this is the eight ways to to get to that liberation, because really what we're talking about in all of the Dharma is just about liberation. All the stuff, you'll hear the same things over and over. I mean, right, there's only so many things that we talk about. We talk about them over and over in different ways. But the whole goal, the essence of it is liberation, is to get to that place of a bit of freedom. And it's not that exterior freedom, right, because... Again, go back to the first noble truth. Life is difficult. That's going to happen. 
But there's something we could do about it, and it's right up here. It's this thing, this mind, this heart-mind thing that is that which actually keeps us locked in to places that, that don't do us any good. You know, this, this heart-mind is really where, where we're not free. And so all of the teachings, no matter what anybody is saying who sits here, it's all about getting to that place of liberation, that place of freedom, that place of unlocking within yourself that which is imprisoning you and creating harm in your life and in others. And we see the world is just filled with harm, so much harm. It's outrageous today. I mean, I've been here a few years and on the planet, and I've never seen anything like it, you know, um, in this country, right now, in this time, in this modern time. And so, and there's a lot of how we relate to it and relate to to the world. And a lot of it comes from the lens through which we see our worldview, our, our view of, of things. And that really makes up a big difference on, on between us is how we see things. And then because we create our lives based on that view, we act according to that view are those views. We act according to those views. We, we build institutions according to those views, actually. You know? And so what we're all headed towards, I think, and why you're sitting here, is that you are one of those folks on the planet who's looking to free it up a little bit, cause less harm within ourselves and to others. So this path, this eightfold path, is a prescription of some really wise stuff that I find really works. And so it's boiled down into three different sections. There's eight that are in three different sections, and there's the wisdom path, which is what I'm going to be talking about, the right view as part of the wisdom path. And then there's that moral path that's about, well, also with wisdom is right view and, and wise view and wise intention. Um, and then there's that morality path, right, that is wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And, and then there's a concentration path that is wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And so all of that together, if we could just like put that all together and create our lives based on that and do it every day, every, every minute, It'd be some pretty happy people, I think. The world would really be different. So we go in and out because it's not reality, right? Because we have um, this life that is conditioned, you know, causes and conditions that create so many different um, things. And we're always responding and reacting to that. We're constantly reacting. We're constantly reacting to everything. I mean, life is one big reaction, and, and then minuscule ones in between. And so what we're trying to do is get from reacting to actually having that, creating that gap, creating that space where wisdom comes in 
And we can actually respond from wisdom and make better choices so that we create less suffering, less suffering for ourselves and for others. And so the wise intention, and sometimes it's called right intention and wise, right or wise, I like wise better. I sometimes um, have been trained to say right and shifting that. But wise view is really the beginning of it, of the Eightfold Path. That's why the Buddha has that one as the first one. Because it's how we see, how our view is. And if we can see life really just as it is, because that's all it is. It's just seeing life, seeing phenomena just as it is. And if we can see it and accept it, there's that other part. That's the hardest part, is accepting it. Um, and, and, And that gets complicated because then we think, well, I can't accept all these horrible things that are happening. So that's another conversation. Well, I'll get there. But if we could just really see it, view it, and accept it um, in ways that the way it really is, it, it really lightens our suffering in many ways. And so it's really a very profound teaching, wise view. Because it really is just based on the nature of reality and seeing things as they are. Without the delusion, without the aversion, without the clinging, without all that stuff that we add to it. And it's hard, it's difficult, it's a, it's a hard path. But that's why we call it practice, we just keep practicing. Because what happens is that wisdom arises, you know, where you, again, you have that moment, you have that peaceful mind that that is steeped into your mindfulness practice, your moment-to-moment awareness, bringing those together. It truly creates a different response to all the things that happen in our lives. It allows us to create wise, full discernment. We can discern things better with less judgment. And it brings the insight, that insight that happens where we can see. And we can see also when we're viewing things in a way that is creating suffering. It's creating suffering. So this wisdom path the wisdom path within the Eightfold Path begins with wise view. And when that happens, then that actually leads to right intention. Right intention actually follows that. Because now you've got this view, you've got this wise wisdom happening within your the way you're seeing things and accepting things. And then an intention, a wise intention follows that. So there's many, many ways to view anything, right? And how we see things, how we interpret the world, how we interpret phenomena, how we interpret um, things that happen to us, people, instances. There's many ways to do that. And what we're trying to do is see how to 
cultivate a mind state that has a balance to it and that can actually see things the way they are. It's also known, wise view is also known as wise understanding. So we're understanding it, right? And it is, um, again, it's the foundation of the Eightfold Path, actually, wise view, because it starts with that and then all the others follow. So it is absolutely the foundation, this starting with the view. So this view really sets our starting point, it's our lens through which we navigate, okay? And it's like having a road map or going on a trip, starting a trip without a map. It's, you don't know where you're going. You're all over the place. And so this is like a road map that really helps us to navigate wisely. Um... I think those of you who are parents, I'm not uh, a parent, I'm not a mother, but parents really have a tough time. I think really, <clears throat> I believe you, the idea is to actually impart wisdom into your children. Wise view, you're constantly guiding them. And so it's like that self-guiding that we're talking about. Because the wrong view has dire consequences. I mean, we see it all the time. You know, I was um, just reading lately. I never saw this before until recently. I don't know if you all remember the young man, Dylan Roof, who was the, um, the young man who went into the church in Charleston and killed nine, murdered nine people, worshipers who were in a place like what we're doing. I mean, it's, you know, in their way. And just came in and slaughtered them. So had a big impact on me, that event. And I remember where I was when um, I was in the car when I heard about it and where I was headed. And I just recently found out that he had a manifesto. Did anybody know about that? Did you ever, anybody seen that manifesto? take a breath. Talk about view. Talk about misguided view. Um, I read, this manifesto's online, actually. And he actually railed against insults, stereotypes. It was unbelievable against Jews, Hispanics, African-Americans, gays, Muslims, and that um, he had the view that Adolf Hitler would someday be inducted as a saint, is what he says, and just those kinds of things. And it's like, where does that come from? Where is that view come from? The dire consequences of wrong view. We look at the planet. I look at the planet right now and I think, we think of Earth as a resource. It's, the tree is a resource and so we take it and chop it up and clear cut. Earth is not a resource. It's, it's our, it's our mother's 
where we come from. We are the earth walking. We are the earth walking and breathing. So that view, and you look at a lot of the issues that I see happening. Um, So wise view, the Buddha said, it is seeing it as it is. My teacher and colleague and friend Sylvia Bornstein says, she says, seeing things just as they are. And she always says, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. That's how she sums it up. It's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. Imagine if you can, the amount of suffering that that would eliminate in ourselves if we really saw life like that and we're able to move through it. So at the essence of wise view is something that's called the three characteristics. And Ernie, you were talking about that. Whatever it is that you're going to be teaching is a lot of what's underneath the teachings. And I find that the three characteristics are something that really is what I'm working with these days and looking at. And so that's why I'm talking about it. And I'm still working it out and and uh, workshopping it with you right now, even. But I love, and I feel it, and I know it inside of me, you know. And so um, Ajahn Chah, who is one of the teachers of all of our teachers, I, so I'm this Theravada teacher, right, from Spirit Rock. Jack Cornfield is my mentor, and um, and I study with him and, you know, all the teachers there. And um, Ajahn Chah was his teacher, okay, so that's the lineage from where we come from. And Ajahn Chah, his, my understanding from what I've read and heard is that his teaching was really based on impermanence. He talked about impermanence all the time. That was his basic underlying teaching was impermanence. Because if you get impermanence, you kind of get the whole of the Buddhist teachings. And, 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 you know, we can intellectually understand impermanence. But really incorporating it into how we live and how we talk and respond and think is where I'm headed, is what, what I think is a real important part of my journey. That was the door of impermanence that made a lot of sense to me in Buddhism. So Ajahn Chah says, the, the Pali word for impermanence is anicca, anicca, impermanence. Ajahn Chah says, anicca is the key that opens the door and gives entrance into the Dharma. And it leads the mind to see the other facets of experience. And the other facets of experience of the other two are dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of, that we talked about, and anatta, which is this inherent lack of actual substance. This, you hear it called no self, and it gets a little 
theoretical and crazy, but we'll, we'll walk this path today, this evening. So, impermanence. All conditioned things are impermanent. Can't argue that fact. All conditioned things are impermanent. And conditioned things meaning that those things, all phenomena that's here on this relative plane that we live on are impermanent. Nothing, nothing lasts forever. So it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a physical thing or an emotional thing. All things, all conditioned things are impermanent. And we don't want it to be. We want things to last. We want good things to last and we want bad things to go away. And bad things won't stay away. They're going to come back. And good things aren't going to stay they're going to leave. <laughs> and that's pretty much the bottom line of how life shows up in this human form. And so our lack of being able to accept impermanence, that grasping or pushing away, it's creates suffering, creates a lot of suffering. And there's so many instances in our life, probably today, if you look over today, Maybe it was that lunch you had. Mm, so good to the last bite. Wish I had one more bite. <laughs> right? I mean, if you look at your day, every day, all day, we're looking at wanting something to either go away that's going to come back or wanting something to stay that's going to leave. It's all impermanent. And if we can actually live in that space where we can hold that, like really hold that, it's not easy to do. But it really does lead towards that liberation. So that basic premise of impermanence is a big part of wise view. If you see life as something that is going to be permanent, that you want to be permanent, anything that is, is not going to lead towards wise view. Does that make sense? Can we, you can see that. Can you see that in your own lives? Can you see that today? Can you see that anywhere? I'm going to take a moment. Just take a moment right now. Let's close our eyes for a second or look down if that's better for you. And go over your day today. If there's anything that the lesson of impermanence, if you could have held that, it would have made something a little bit easier. Suffering may be a hard word to say, but something, it would have made life a little easier something that you may have wanted to stay or something that you wanted to push away. Think about just your day-to-day. 
And don't forget your emotional state. So coming back, we can see that you all find something in the day that 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 was true for in your day today? You said every day? Every day. Every day. Every day, all the time. And so this, this wise view of the impermanent nature of life is helpful. It's helpful. Another part of the, the three characteristics of insight, another one has is dukkha, suffering, the unsatisfactoriness of things. It's the first noble truth. It's the first noble truth. That is how life shows up. Not all the time. I mean, there's joy and lots of joy, I hope. And we are navigating the hard places, right? We navigate, we pick up the phone, or we don't pick it up like that anymore. But you, you're on your cell phone, and you call your friend, and, you know, talk me through this. Help me navigate this. Because it's hard. And that's another part of understanding that that is. My, my, my dear friend and teacher, Larry Yang, who I adore, who has a book out that I highly recommend. Um, you know, the Buddha has the four noble truths. He has a fifth noble truth. He's added one. And I think he has the right to do that myself. The fifth noble truth is, let me say it correctly, is to, um, Forgiving the first noble truth is forgiving the first noble truth. That that it's tough, and 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 that there's this there's this so many things happen that feel so hugely unfair, hugely hurtful, harmful. Can we forgive that first noble truth? And so, when we talk about dukkha, dukkha, the other word for, the Pali word for, this unsatisfactory nature of things, being able to hold it, with some equanimity, being able to hold it without going so deeply down the rabbit hole. We go so deeply down the rabbit hole with our mind states, our afflicted mind states, fighting it, fighting what is. We go so far down the rabbit hole. And so, again, going back to what is our goal? What is our goal of all of this, of our, of our practice? Liberation, right? To free ourselves from habits of mind. 
to free ourselves from those habits that that create the suffering. So, dukkha, an impermanence, anicca, holding that in a way with wise view. So that's why the Buddha says that, you know, the basis of wise view are being able to see things as they are, to see them just as they are. And because things are impermanent, there's nothing really to hold on to because it's going to change. It's going to move and change. Everything changes. Everything. And because it changes and because it moves around and there's nothing to hold on to, nothing that you can actually count on. I mean, really, what can you count on? Really. You can't even count on your own self. You can't even count on your own mind to stay because next thing you know, you're thinking something. Oh, well, I used to, I didn't used to like tomatoes. Now I love tomatoes. That's true in my life, right? I hated avocados. Now you can't put an avocado in front of me without me devouring it. I mean, tastes change. Feelings change. Everything. This body. This body. Oh, my God. I look in the mirror and it's like, wow, where'd that come from? Right? Constantly changing. As we're sitting here right now, cells are doing their thing and you're not the same person you were when you walked in the door. And neither are your partners (laughs) or your children your friends, everybody, everything is constantly in motion. And so because of that, there's nothing that can be really reliable and counted on. So if you see life as something that's unreliable, that you can't really count on it, you can't count on something to stay the same, it's impermanent, it kind of creates this ability to let go. To let go and to live life, to you live your life is, you know, but there's this, there's this letting go that happens. And so that the mind state, the mind state, you know, you look at people like Eckhart Tolle and, you know, his story of being on the bench or something for years and sitting there and the world is going around. I mean, those are extreme examples, but the point is that I I always see him in my mind's eye, sitting on a bench and being able to just accept the world as it is. How do we do this in our lives? How do we do this as people who go to work every day and come home and have families? And But that's what this teaching is. That's what this teaching is about. That's what we're learning to do. The practical nature of it. So if things are 
unreliable, right? They're going to change. Can't hold on to it. Then there's, through the Buddhist lens, there's this, this way of looking at that that says, well then, that they're without enduring substance. Because that substance that was is no longer, it's something else now. So phenomena, condition phenomena is without enduring substance. And that is what is often said, no self. And when you say no self, that freaks people out. So I try not to use those words, no self, because it's really pretty freaky to think, but wait a minute. <laughs> but that's what is what is pointing to is this changing nature, unreliable. Where is the substance? Am I my body? Am I my body? Or am I my thoughts? Sometimes I think I'm my thoughts. Am I my emotions? Who am I? And all those things are changing. The body's changing, the thoughts are changing, the emotions are changing. Everything's in flux. We're a process. (laughs) We're actually a process. So this wise view is holding all of that. The impermanent nature of all phenomena, conditioned phenomena. The dukkha that we know that shows up constantly. And this real lack of substance to hold on to. So imagine, so all of this is kind of very theoretical, but placing it into our lives, like what does that look like? What does that actually look like? So if you take something that may have happened to you in your life recently, We'll, 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 we'll do, we'll, we'll work on that. We'll, we'll do something. But what I want to tell you, I want to tell you a little story that, um, when this grounded in me many, many years ago, how I didn't have the words, I didn't know Buddhism then, but it, this whole concept, all three of the characteristics, the impermanence, the dukkha, and the, this lack of substance that is changing and moving, all of it grounded in me in 1975. So, prior to that, um, let's just say that I grew up as a kid with... Um, a lot of happiness, actually. I had a cool family and a cool life. And I was the one who had a lot of um, 
what a joy, you know, lightness. I didn't have a heaviness. I had lightness and sparkly and, you know, that kind of kid stuff. And I grew up in in, in Southern California in an all-black um, and brown neighborhood, primarily, uh, primarily Mexican and black neighborhood in Southern California. Till the age of 12. And life was just fun, living in the, hanging out in the streets and, you know, you could play in the streets back then. At the age of 12, my family moved. This was 1968. I was 12 in 1968. We moved to just, what, a few miles down the road? But it was a whole other landscape. It was another town, a little suburb. And my family was probably third or fourth black family in the entire town. This was 1968. Okay. It was, it was brutal. It was brutal at times. I discovered, and it discovered me, racism. And I realized from where I was to when all that happened, it was like, like if all the lights that you have, when you have, and then everyone, there's a few lights that go out. A few of my lights started to go out, you know? That lightness of spirit. And it was, but I was still, you know, persevered and ended up with friends and things changed and got pretty good. But I finally realized, I realized Dukkha, this global Dukkha, that first noble truth, that stuff that that you that is bigger than all of us, but that we all participate in. So, by the time I got to Cal, I got here. I came to Cal in 1973, and by the time I got to Cal, I met someone who turned me on to yoga. And um, I was, you know, I was ready for something. So up on Channing, near Telegraph and Channing, there used to be a, a center where um, the Sikhs had a, a center there where there was yoga. And it was like 6 a.m. yoga every morning. And I went to my first yoga class. I didn't know anything about yoga. So I go to my first yoga class with my friend Raz, who took me there. And... It was tough. It was kundalini yoga, right? And it was, I mean, it was tough. But at the end, savasana, right? You know, you're laying out at savasana where you all the, you integrate. Oh, my God. Everything happened in that moment. It was like my lights came back on fully. And I, the dukkha that had been, a part of me just felt like I was aware of it in a different way. And it was, it was there, but it was kind of like outside of me. And then this whole impermanence and the anatta, the, 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 the unsubstantial nature of, of me, I was just, I was floating. I was in this space that I literally felt everything and it changed my life. 
that class, that first kundalini yoga class changed my life. And I came back to myself that I remembered. It was amazing. And from there, my journey, my spiritual journey, really took hold. And I didn't have the words for it that I have now. But because, you know, the body, we know that the body is the first foundation of mindfulness because we can, it is the gross place where we feel life, where we bump up against life in this body. And it took a yoga class for me to be able to really understand the nature of life lying there in Savasana. I came back every morning at 6 a.m. laying there in Savasana and understanding life in a whole new way. And really feeling the opening of my heart. You know? My heart opened up again. Really just heart opening. So I can tell you firsthand from that, that living from that space, touching life as it really is, awakening to that is hugely impactful and can really make a difference in how we navigate, in how we navigate life. So, I became a yoga teacher. (laughs) And, um, Yeah, it's made a huge difference for me. And it grounds me in that place of understanding letting go, of just deep letting go. And understanding the permanent nature and the moving nature of all of it. And the mind state that accompanies that is really, again, going back to wise view. All of this is a part of wise view. So I'm going to um, do a little diet work, if that's okay. I don't know if you all are kind of used to doing that kind of thing. Good. So um, turn to somebody. Find yourself a partner. So, introduce yourselves, and does everybody have a partner? Oh, great, we have an even number. Introduce yourselves, and um, so, closing your eyes for a moment, I'm going to have you think about a time 
when you had a really aversive mind state, something happened, anger, uh, jealousy, um, rage, um, whatever it might be, this aversive mind state. You're really upset. Something happened, someone's something. And remember your reaction. Think about your reaction to that. What did you say? What did you do? How did you react to it? One, there's probably so many to pick from. See if you can choose one. And now turn into your partner. My question is, you can say as little or as much as you want to about what that thing is. That's not really the most important part, unless it's important to the story. But what I really am going for is... How could you have used your mindfulness practice, your awareness practice, and the lessons of impermanence to have liberated yourself from the reaction that you had? How could your awareness practice and this this notion of wise view however you have heard it and however you interpret it, how could that have helped you maybe make another choice? Do something a little bit differently. And you're going to discuss that with your partner. So you each have um, like three minutes each, okay? And choose whoever goes first. You have 30 more seconds, the first person. So start wrapping it up. The second partner can go now. Got 30 seconds for the second person to wrap it up. that? Did some stuff come up? I think we have time probably for one or two shares. Um, I have a mic here that's live. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. What's your name? Andrew. Andrew, thank you. And if you want to just share anything that, that came up? shares. <laughs> that was a absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, somebody in the back. And can you say your name so I can meet you? 
Gidra. Uh, Gidra. Uh, we, but what I, I said at the end was that it's kind of humbling uh, because to experience this uh, anger because after many years of practice, it really doesn't come up very often. So when it does, it's like, I'm going, wow. <laughs> you know, it's really, it's interesting. <laughs> very good, very good. So you found that your practice has really, from before you practiced to now, it sounds like you've had many years of practice, it's really made things different in that, in that department. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Anybody else have, we have time for one more. And then can you tell me your name? I'm Mark. Hey, Mark. Excuse me. Uh, so my situation is very immediate, and what was interesting, uh, I'm looking for a job for the first time in my life, in my 50s. Uh, uh, first time I've been out of work, and the aversion of the whole process has been very acute. And can you put my the mic pra- up closer? Oh, my practice is, you know, only I don't know, seven or eight years old, but uh, you know, I was very close to understanding and like being with what I, I'm, I've, I've learned, but not to the point where I could actually. You know, I still was falling down the rabbit hole of running away from it, going back to bed, mm-hmm. feeling bad about it, blaming myself at all of the second, third, and fourth arrows. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting spot of being several times recently of of kind of knowing the path and and you know all of the the language and all the teachings, but just not quite being able to turn it around yeah. Yeah. and, and yeah. bring it to uh, bring it to bear. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 that's the practice, right? Uh, you know, I, I it makes me say to go back to mindfulness. The mindfulness practice, what's so beautiful about mindfulness practice to me, is that I practice it in a way that as the mind wanders and creates and goes, and beginning again. I say to myself, begin again. And doing that with kindness, it's actually mindfulness practice is a way for you to learn to not judge and to be kinder to yourself. Begin again. Just begin again. And not judge. Begin again. And that is creates a groove, I have found, a kind of a kindness groove to me. And that actually reverberates in other places. So I just say, just go back to the breath <laughs> and begin again and begin again and be soft and kind with yourself with that. And that's the practice. Yeah. I think that's it. So, um, thank you. Thank you all for having me here tonight and being such wonderful people, not getting up and walking out or anything like that, and, you know, being quiet and acting like you're listening. I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate it, though. And um, so we're going to end with a um, little metta and dedicating the merit. We have um, to... Brother friends who um, 
We're going to surround and allow ourselves to just surround this meta field, this field of meta, of loving kindness, of compassion, this field surrounding all of us here in this room and that we may be free from mental and physical and emotional suffering, that we may be protected and safe from inner and outer harm. That we may hold them and hold each other and hold ourselves with the deepest compassion, forgiveness, loving kindness that's possible in this moment. And if it's not possible in this moment, may it be possible later, soon. And just dedicating, I want to dedicate the merit of our practice here together this evening to all beings everywhere, all beings in all realms, that they may find, truly find liberation and freedom from suffering. Thank you. Thank you for your your kindness. Appreciate it. May you have a beautiful evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.